In a Stuff exclusive, the mother of baby Rue, the toddler who died late last year in Wellington, has spoken on the record and says she did not kill her son. For that and everything else we're talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story was originally published in the Sunday Star Times and is called I Nailed Tamahiri. It's written by senior reporter Mike White and is about allegations of a top cop confessing to a prominent New Zealander days after the trial that he framed his suspect. The top cop was Detective Inspector John Hughes, who led the investigation into the murders of Swedish backpackers Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin. David Tamaheri, the suspect in question, was convicted of murdering the couple and sentenced to life imprisonment in 1990. Now, here is Mike White reading his story, I Nailed Tamaheri. Sir Bob Jones remembers Tough as Guts cop John Hughes well. The high-profile businessman and property investor remembers how a young Hughes was New Zealand's light middleweight boxing champion three times from 1955 to 1957. He can picture Hughes dancing and jabbing his way to victory in blue shorts at Wellington's Town Hall in times when national titles meant something. And he remembers him more than 30 years later when Hughes was a revered and feared detective inspector and approached Jones at a function in Auckland in 1990. Days before, a jury had convicted David Tamaheri of murdering Swedish backpackers Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoogland after an investigation led by Hughes. Jones and Hughes had known each other for decades, beginning with their mutual involvement in boxing, and Jones had followed Hughes' progress through the ranks to become an almost mythologised detective who Crims ran scared from. That night, Jones says, he was on the dance floor when Hughes spied him, marched up and began poking him in the chest. And Hughes said, I nailed Tamahiri. And I said, well done, Johnny. And he said, well, you listen to me. And he was still jabbing me in the chest. And he said, I nailed him by making up all the evidence, but I'm telling you, the bastard did it. Tamahiri's conviction for murdering the Swedish couple remains one of the country's most controversial cases. And this week, it's returned to the Court of Appeal. Hooglin and Parkinen had been touring New Zealand for five months and by April 1989 had made it to Coromandel in their white Subaru. Around lunchtime on Friday, April the 7th, they had their hair cut in a Thames salon and then they disappeared. Apart from unconfirmed sightings and reports of their Subaru at the start of a tramping track near Thames, that's where David Tamahiri found it. Tamahiri had been on the run for more than two years after jumping bail while facing sentencing for raping a woman over six hours. He'd been living off the land and sea, eating goats and ducks and eels and kawai, and occasionally heading back to Auckland to see his family. He had a previous conviction for manslaughter and knew that when the cops caught up with him, he'd go down hard. So when he discovered the Swede's car full of camping gear, he says he decided to help himself and nick the Sabaro. Eventually, 
Weeks after Parkin and Hoogland were reported missing, sparking a massive search and Operation Stockholm, headed by Hughes, information led police to Tamahiri as the man who stole their car. Five months later, he was charged with their murder and found guilty the following year, despite there being no bodies, no forensics, no eyewitnesses to the killings and no crime scene. To reinforce his case, Hughes used three jailhouse snitches who claimed Tamahiri confessed to them while in prison. It was an entirely circumstantial case, and perhaps that's why Hughes was celebrating, crowing to his old mate as Sir Bob Jones insists he did, despite them having clashed over Hughes' role in another controversial case, the wrongful conviction of Arthur Allen Thomas. The following year, Hughes' alleged confession to Jones seemed to be borne out when Hoogland's body was discovered by hunters. Not where police said the couple were murdered, but more than 70 kilometres away. And compellingly, Hoogland's watch, which Hughes and prosecutors swore Tamahiri had stripped from his victim and given to his son, was still on the body. Despite this, the Court of Appeal rejected Tamahiri's appeal and he served more than 20 years in prison. But in 2017, prison lawyer Arthur Taylor and justice campaigner Mike Culliher took a private prosecution against one of the prison snitches used in Tamahiri's trial, accusing him of lying. Roberto Conchi Harris, a notorious double murderer and recidivist police informant, had claimed Tamahiri said he beat Urban Hoagland about the head with a lump of wood, dumped his body at sea, and gave Hoogland's watch to his son, all of which were proved to be wrong after Hoogland's body was discovered. Harris was convicted on all eight perjury charges and died in prison in 2021. This collapse of yet another plank in the police investigation of Tamahiri has, six years later, led to the case being reconsidered in the Court of Appeal. Sir Bob Jones says... John Hughes was incredibly strong-willed and fabled for visiting his boxing skills on uncooperative suspects. He hated crime. He was just very fervent about fighting criminality and he was upset that lawyers got them off. Jones believes Hughes cut corners and fitted evidence to convict those he was convinced were guilty, like Tamahiri and Thomas. But Johnny was a very honest man, Jones says. He would never come into the category of framing someone for the sake of it, like Taina Pora. That was just disgraceful. A magazine profile of Hughes during Operation Stockholm described him as totally fearless, totally ruthless, the first man over the wall with a gun. I want results, Hughes told the writer. I'm not interested in failure or excuses. But alongside legend and success came scrutiny and sanction of Hughes' actions. The Royal Commission into Arthur Allen Thomas's wrongful conviction found crucial evidence from Hughes, which linked Thomas with the victims, was wrong. An internal inquiry into Hughes' heavy-handed investigation of a firebombing targeting his house was followed by a transfer to Hamilton for several years. Hughes also faced accusations he fabricated a suspect's confession, though he never faced charges over it. Arthur Taylor whose prosecution of Conchi Harris reopened Tamahiri's case, says Hughes' nickname was The Gardener, 
because he did more planting than your average professional gardener out there, Taylor says. Despite not knowing Tamahiri, once Taylor learnt Harris was giving jailhouse evidence, he knew the case must be dodgy. Taylor says everyone in Parry, Paramaroma Prison, knew Conchi was an inveterate liar and gambler and would say anything to further his end. He was a scumbag of the worst kind. He's the very last person David would make any confession to because he would have been well aware of his reputation. Taylor had his own run-in with John Hughes early in his prolific criminal career after being picked up selling stolen jewellery in Auckland, having travelled up from Wellington. He says, I wasn't being very forthcoming. And then the door flies open and this nuggety ratbag comes running over to me and starts punching me about the head. After being informed by two other detectives that this was the fearsome John Hughes, Taylor says the door flew open again and Hughes rushed back in. He says, he starts smacking me about the head with this great telephone book. And those Auckland telephone books weren't bloody light. Eventually, Hughes told Taylor that if he ever returned to Auckland, he'd regret it. And I'd be getting more than a f***ing telephone book over my head. Hughes then ordered Taylor to be put on a train back to Wellington. Ross Murant worked closely with Hughes for many years and says Hughes' motto was, We run this town. A cop for 21 years, known for his role in police's Red Squad during the 1981 Springbok tour, and later an MP, Murant says Hughes was a dynamic leader and extremely motivational. Of all the police officers in the country, he would be the most outstanding, Murant says. On occasions, courts have decided he may have overstepped the mark. But I can't say that because I don't have the evidence. However, Murant left the police in 1987 questioning whether elite elements had effectively become a law unto themselves, with evidence being fabricated and corruption excused. John Hughes died in 2006. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Wellington's Court of Appeal has never been a happy place for David Tamahiri. It was here, in 1990, that evidence from two trampers claiming they saw Tamahiri with a blonde woman was allowed to be used at his trial. Even though trial judge David Tompkins had originally ruled it so tainted by unacceptable police actions, it was inadmissible. And it was here, two years later, the court insisted the discovery of Hoogland's body, far from where police indicated it would be, with his watch still on, 
was effectively irrelevant as they had rejected Tamahiri's appeal. Tamahiri's lawyer at that 1992 appeal, Christopher Ruth, says it was one of the most appalling judgments of the Court of Appeal you'll ever come across. Ruth believes the case was tarred with a strong political brush as the country sought to recover from the disgrace of the Swedes' murders. He says, I had a very, very strong sense that David Tamahiri was a brilliant fool guy. He'd had a previous conviction for rape, and for our international image, it was good to have a guy like this locked up. It was one of the most blatant miscarriages of justice in New Zealand legal history. Ruth says the experience left him shattered. And while some will argue this week's hearing has merely ripped open scars for victims, families and witnesses, Ruth insists we can't ignore new evidence and have to ensure justice has been done in cases like Tamahiri's. I wish him all the luck, Ruth says. He thoroughly deserves it. David Tamahiri wasn't in court watching proceedings. What's the point, he says. He wasn't required to speak. So he was at home in Auckland, plodding along, doing what I normally do. Tamahiri was paroled from prison in 2010, but his life sentence means he can be recalled at any time. While Tamahiri says it's good his case has got back to court after more than 30 years, he's not getting his hopes up. Because I know how the system works, he says. Their first job is to preserve the system so it appears that it works well. He believes what Sir Bob Jones alleges is true. There's no two ways about it. The bulk of their case was manufactured. Police declined to comment on allegations Hughes admitted fabricating evidence to convict Tamahiri. Tamahiri, who turned 70 in October, realises this is probably his last chance to clear his name. I just want a reasonable hearing, he says. But what of the victims? 21-year-old Parkinen and her fiancé, Huglin. Parkinen's body has never been found. Huglin's remains were sent back to Sweden in 1991 and buried next to his father in Storfors, where the couple grew up. But it's now been revealed not all of Huglin's skeleton was returned. Investigations by the Sunday Star Times show Huglin's cervical spine, the neck portion of his spinal column, remained in New Zealand and was displayed at Auckland's Forensic Pathology Laboratory for more than 20 years. Retired forensic pathologist Timothy Kohlmeyer says examinations of Huglin's skeleton reveal cuts to vertebrae, which he believes indicated an attempted decapitation. Kohlmeyer says he told John Hughes Huglin's skeleton was packed up, ready to be repatriated, but he was still examining the cervical spine. And next thing you know, he says, the neck bones get left behind and the rest of the skeleton goes off to Sweden. Kulmeyer says when he told Hughes what had happened, Hughes replied, leave it to me, Tim, I'll sort it out. Hughes assured him Hoogland's family had consented to the neck bones staying in New Zealand. Believing they might be evidence in the case at some stage, Kulmeyer mounted the seven vertebrae on an 18-centimetre steel Steinman pin, a rod used by surgeons treating bone fractures. They were then displayed in a conference room 
which doubled as a library at the Forensic Pathology Laboratory. Sitting in a glass cabinet beside books, bound journals, and several skulls Kuhlmeier says were used for teaching. Nothing identified the bones as Hoogland's. It wasn't until after Kuhlmeier retired and after more than 20 years on display that action was taken to dispose of Hoogland's spine. Documents obtained by the Sunday Star Times under the Official Information Act show that in October 2014, police became aware Hoogland's vertebrae were still in Auckland's mortuary. And we need to have an awkward conversation with the family over what they want done with them. But the second in charge of Operation Stockholm, Bruce Raffin, told police that Hoogland's family knew some bones had been kept in New Zealand. Personally, I would just destroy them if ESR no longer wished to store them, or maybe give them to the police museum, who ended up with a number of exhibits from the case. In December 2014, Simon Stables from Auckland's Forensic Pathology Service asked police for a copy of the permission from Hoogland's family to keep the bones before he cremated them. Unless police want to retain them for the police museum at the police college although this latter option may not be culturally appropriate in today's environment. No other correspondence appears to have taken place at the time, and police emails from 2023 show they could find no record of permission from Hoogland's family. But a spreadsheet from the Forensic Pathology Department indicates the bones were sent to J. Weir funeral directors two days before Christmas 2014. The funeral home went into receivership five months later, leaving many urns of ashes unclaimed. Te Toka Tumai Auckland, formerly the Auckland District Health Board, confirmed Hoogland's ashes weren't returned to it. Urban Hoogland's family declined to comment. That was I Nailed Tamahedi on the Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Mike White and produced by Jen Black. This episode was edited by John Ropiha. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you follow the podcast, you'll get the latest episodes automatically. This story was made possible by subscribers to The Post. If you want to support more beautifully told New Zealand stories, go to thepost.co.nz. Thanks for listening. If you liked listening to this pod, Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child abuse no, numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.